Chapter Six of the Ball and the Cross. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Ball and the Cross by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter Six: The Other Philosopher. Between high hedges in Hertfordshire, hedges so high as to create a kind of grove, two men were running. They did not run in a scampering or feverish manner, but in the steady swing of the pendulum. Across the great plains and uplands to the right and left of the lane, a long tide of sunset light rolled like a sea of ruby, lighting up the long terraces of the hills and picking out the few windows of the scattered hamlets in startling blood-red sparks. But the lane was cut deep in the hill and remained in an abrupt shadow. The two men running in it had an impression not uncommonly experienced between those wild green English walls a sense of being led between the walls of a maze. Though their pace was steady, it was vigorous. Their faces were heated, and their eyes fixed and bright. There was, indeed, something a little mad in the contrast between the evening stillness over the empty countryside and these two figures fleeing wildly from nothing. They had the look of two lunatics. Possibly they were. "'Are you all right?' said Turnbull with civility. "'Can you keep this up?' "'Quite easily, thank you,' replied MacIan. "'I run very well.' "'Is that a qualification in a family of warriors?' asked Turnbull. "'Undoubtedly. Rapid movement is essential,' answered MacIan, who never saw a joke in his life. Turnbull broke out into a short laugh, and silence fell between them, the panting silence of runners. Then MacIan said, "'We run better than any of those policemen. They are too fat.' Why do you make your policemen so fat? I didn't do much towards making them fat myself, replied Turnbull genially, but I flatter myself that I am now doing something towards making them thin. You'll see they will be as lean as rakes by the time they catch us. They will look like your friend Cardinal Manning. But they won't catch us, said MacIan in his literal way. No, we beat them in the great military art of running away, returned the other, they won't catch us unless... MacIan turned his long equine face inquiringly. Unless what? he said, for Turnbull had gone silent suddenly, and seemed to be listening intently as he ran as a horse does with his ears turned back. Unless what? repeated the Highlander. Unless they do what they have done. Listen! MacIan slackened his trot, and turned his head to the trail they had left behind them. Across two or three billows of the up-and-down lane came along the ground the unmistakable throbbing of horses' hoofs. "'They have put the mounted police on us,' said Turnbull shortly. "'Good Lord, one would think we were a revolution.' "'So we are,' said MacIan calmly. "'What shall we do? Shall we turn on them with our points?' "'It may come to that,' answered Turnbull, "'though if it does, I reckon that will be the last act.' We must put it off if we can. And he stared and peered about him between the bushes. If we could hide somewhere, the beasts might go by us, he said. The police have their faults, but thank God they're inefficient. Why, here's the very thing. Be quick and quiet. Follow me. He suddenly swung himself up the high bank on one side of the lane. It was almost as high and smooth as a wall, and on the top of it the black hedge stood out over them as an angle, almost like a thatched roof of the lane. 
and the burning evening sky looked down at them through the tangle with red eyes as of an army of goblins. Turnbull hoisted himself up and broke the hedge with his body. As his head and shoulders rose above it, they turned to flame in the full glow, as if lit up by an immense firelight. His red hair and beard looked almost scarlet, and his pale face as bright as a boy's. Something violent, something that was at once love and hatred, surged in the strange heart of the gale below him. He had an unutterable sense of epic importance, as if he were somehow lifting all humanity into a prouder and more passionate region of the air. As he swung himself up also into the evening light, he felt as if he were rising on enormous wings. Legends of the morning of the world which he had heard in childhood or read in youth came back upon him in a cloudy splendor, purple tales of wrath and friendship, like Roland and Oliver, or Baleen and Bolan, reminding him of emotional entanglements. Men who had loved each other and then fought each other, men who had fought each other and then loved each other, together made a mixed but monstrous sense of momentousness. The crimson seas of the sunset seemed to him like a bursting out of some sacred blood, as if the heart of the world had broken. Turnbull was wholly unaffected by any written or spoken poetry. His was a powerful and prosaic mind. But even upon him there came for the moment something out of the earth and the passionate ends of the sky. The only evidence was in his voice, which was still practical but a shade more quiet. Do you see that summer-house looking thing over there? he asked shortly. That will do for us very well. Keeping himself free from the tangle of the hedge, he strolled across a triangle of obscure kitchen garden, and approached a dismal shed or lodge a yard or two beyond it. It was a weather-stained hut of grey wood, which with all its desolation retained a tag or two of trivial ornament, which suggested that the thing had once been a sort of summer-house, and the place probably a sort of garden. "'That is quite invisible from the road,' said Turnbull as he entered it, "'and it will cover us up for the night.' MacIan looked at him gravely for a few moments. "'Sir,' he said, "'I ought to say something to you. I ought to say—' "'Hush!' said Turnbull, suddenly lifting his hand. "'Be still, man!' In the sudden silence the drumming of the distant horses grew louder and louder, with inconceivable rapidity— and the cavalcade of police rushed by below them in the lane, almost with the roar and rattle of an express train. "'I ought to tell you,' continued MacIan, still staring stolidly at the other, "'that you are a great chief, and it is good to go to war behind you.' Turnbull said nothing, but turned and looked out of the foolish lattice of the little windows. Then he said, "'We must have food and sleep first. When the last echo of their eluded pursuers had died in the distant uplands, Turnbull began to unpack the provisions with the easy air of a man at a picnic. He had just laid out the last items, put a bottle of wine on the floor and a tin of salmon on the window ledge, when the bottomless silence of that forgotten place was broken, and it was broken by three heavy blows of a stick delivered upon the door. Turnbull looked up in the act of opening a tin, and stared silently at his companion. MacIan's long, lean mouth had shut hard. "'Who the devil can it be?' said Turnbull. "'God knows,' said the other. "'It might be God.' Again the sound of the wooden stick reverberated on the wooden door. 
it was a curious sound, and on consideration did not resemble the ordinary effects of knocking on a door for admittance. It was rather as if the point of a stick were plunged again and again at the panels in an absurd attempt to make a hole in them. A wild look sprang into MacIan's eyes, and he got up half-stupidly, with a kind of stagger, put his hand out and caught one of the swords. "'Let us fight at once,' he cried. "'It is the end of the world.' "'You're overdone, MacIan,' said Turnbull, putting him on one side. "'It's only someone playing the goat. Let me open the door.' But he also picked up a sword as he stepped to open it. He paused one moment with his hand on the handle, and then flung the door open. Almost as he did so, the ferrule of an ordinary bamboo cane came at his eyes, so that he had actually to parry it with the naked weapon in his hands. As the two touched, the point of the stick was dropped very abruptly, and the man with the stick stepped hurriedly back. Against the heraldic background of sprawling crimson and gold offered him by the expiring sunset, the figure of the man with the stick showed at first merely black and fantastic. He was a small man with two wisps of long hair that curled up on each side, and seen in silhouette, looked like horns. He had a bow-tie so big that the two ends showed on each side of his neck like unnatural stunted wings. He had his long black cane still tilted in his hand like a fencing foil and half presented at the open door. His large straw hat had fallen behind him as he leapt backwards. "'With reference to your suggestion, MacIan,' said Turnbull placidly, "'I think it looks more like the devil.' "'Who on earth are you?' cried the stranger in a high shrill voice, brandishing his cane defensively. "'Let me see,' said Turnbull, looking round to MacIan with the same blandness. "'Who are we?' "'Come out!' screamed the little man with the stick. "'Certainly,' said Turnbull, and went outside with the sword, MacIan following. Seen more fully, with the evening light on his face, the strange man looked a little less like a goblin. He wore a square pale grey jacket suit, on which the grey butterfly tie was the only indisputable touch of affectation. Against the great sunset his figure had looked merely small. Seen in a more equal light, it looked tolerably compact and shapely. His reddish-brown hair, combed into two great curls, looked like the long, slow-curling hair of the women in some pre-Raphaelite pictures. But within this feminine frame of hair, his face was unexpectedly impudent, like a monkey's. "'What are you doing here?' he said in a sharp, small voice. "'Well,' said MacIan, in his grave, childish way, "'what are you doing here?' "'I,' said the man indignantly, I'm in my own garden. Oh, said MacIan simply, I apologize. Turnbull was coolly curling his red moustache, and the stranger stared from one to the other, temporarily stunned by their innocent assurance. But may I ask, he said at last, what the devil you are doing in my summer-house? Certainly, said MacIan, we were just going to fight. To fight, repeated the man. We had better tell this gentleman the whole business, broke in Turnbull. Then turning to the stranger, he said firmly, I am sorry, sir, but we have something to do that must be done, and I may as well tell you at the beginning, and to avoid waste of time or language, that we cannot admit any interference. 
we were just going to take some slight refreshment when you interrupted us. The little man had a dawning expression of understanding, and stooped and picked up the unused bottle of wine, eyeing it curiously. Turnbull continued, But that refreshment was preparatory to something which I fear you will find less comprehensible, but on which our minds are entirely fixed, sir. We are forced to fight a duel. We are forced by honor and an internal intellectual need. Do not, for your own sake, attempt to stop us. I know all the excellent and ethical things that you will want to say to us. I know all about the essential requirements of civil order. I have written leading articles about them all my life. I know all about the sacredness of human life. I have bored all my friends with it. Try and understand our position. This man and I are alone in the modern world in that we think that God is essentially important. I think he does not exist. That is where the importance comes in for me. But this man thinks that he does exist, and thinking that very properly thinks him more important than anything else. Now we wish to make a great demonstration and assertion, something that will set the world on fire like the first Christian persecutions. If you like, we are attempting a mutual martyrdom. The papers have posted up every town against us. Scotland Yard has fortified every police station with our enemies. We are driven, therefore, to the edge of a lonely lane, and indirectly to taking liberties with your summer-house in order to arrange our— Stop! roared the little man in the butterfly necktie. Put me out of my intellectual misery. Are you really the two Tom fools I have read of in all the papers? Are you the two people who wanted to spit each other in the police court? Are you? Are you? Yes, said McKeon. It began in a police court. The little man slung the bottle of wine twenty yards away like a stone. Come up to my place, he said. I've got better stuff than that. I've got the best bone within fifty miles of here. Come up. You're the very men I wanted to see. Even Turnbull, with his typical invulnerability, was a little taken aback by this boisterous and almost brutal hospitality. Why, sir, he began. Come up, come in, howled the little man, dancing with delight. I'll give you a dinner, I'll give you a bed, I'll give you a green smooth lawn and your choice of swords and pistols. Why, you fools, I adore fighting. It's the only good thing in God's world. I've walked about these damned fields and longed to see somebody cut up and killed and the blood running. Ha, ha! And he made sudden lunges with his stick at the trunk of a neighboring tree, so that the feral made fierce prints and punctures in the bark. Excuse me, said McKeon suddenly, with the wide-eyed curiosity of a child. Excuse me, but— Well, said the small fighter, brandishing his wooden weapon. Excuse me, repeated McKeon, but was that what you were doing at the door? The little man stared an instant, and then said, Yes, and Turnbull broke into a guffaw. Come on, cried the little man, tucking his stick under his arm and taking quite suddenly to his heels. Come on, confound me, I'll see both of you eat, and then I'll see one of you die. Lord bless me, the gods must exist after all. They have sent me one of my daydreams. Lord, a duel! He had gone flying along a winding path between the borders of the kitchen garden, and in the increasing twilight he was as hard to follow as a flying hare. 
but at length the path after many twists betrayed its purpose and led abruptly up two or three steps to the door of a tiny but very clean cottage there was nothing about the outside to distinguish it from other cottages except indeed its ominous cleanliness and one thing that was out of all the custom and tradition of all cottages under the sun in the middle of the little garden among the stocks and marigolds there surged up in shapeless stone a south sea island idol there was something gross and even evil in that eyeless and alien god among the most innocent of the english flowers come in cried the creature again come in it's better inside whether or no it was better inside it was at least a surprise the moment the two duelists had pushed open the door of that inoffensive whitewashed cottage they found that its interior was lined with fiery gold it was like stepping into a chamber in the arabian nights the door that closed behind them shut out england and all the energies of the west the ornaments that shone and shimmered on every side of them were subtly mixed from many periods and lands but were all oriental cruel assyrian bas-reliefs ran along the sides of the passage cruel turkish swords and daggers glinted above and below them the two were separated by ages and fallen civilizations yet they seemed to sympathize since they were both harmonious and both merciless the house seemed to consist of chamber within chamber and created that impression as of a dream which belongs also to the arabian nights themselves the innermost room of all was like the inside of a jewel the little man who owned it all threw himself on a heap of scarlet and golden cushions and struck his hands together. A negro in a white robe and turban appeared suddenly and silently behind them. Selim, said the host, these two gentlemen are staying with me tonight. Send up the very best wine and dinner at once. And Selim, one of these gentlemen will probably die tomorrow. Make arrangements, please. The negro bowed and withdrew. Evan McKeon came out the next morning into the little garden to a fresh silver day, his long face looking more austere than ever in that cold light, his eyelids a little heavy. He carried one of the swords. Turnbull was in the little house behind him, demolishing the end of an early breakfast and humming a tune to himself, which could be heard through the open window. A moment or two later he leapt to his feet, and came out into the sunlight, still munching toast, his own sword stuck under his arm like a walking-stick. Their eccentric host had vanished from sight, with a polite gesture, some twenty minutes before. They imagined him to be occupied on some concerns in the interior of the house, and they waited for his emergence, stamping the garden in silence, the garden of tall, fresh country flowers, in the midst of which the monstrous South Sea idol lifted itself as abruptly as the prow of a ship riding on a sea of red and white and gold. It was with a start, therefore, that they came upon the man himself already in the garden. They were all the more startled because of the still posture in which they found him. He was on his knees in front of the stone idol, rigid and motionless, like a saint in a trance or ecstasy. Yet when Turnbull's tread broke a twig, he was on his feet in a flash, "'Excuse me,' he said, with an irradiation of smiles, but yet with a kind of bewilderment. "'So sorry, family prayers, old-fashioned, mother's knee. Let us go on to the lawn behind.' 
and he ducked rapidly round the statue to an open space of grass on the other side of it. "'This will do us best, Mr. McKeon,' said he. Then he made a gesture towards the heavy stone figure on the pedestal, which had now its blank and shapeless back turned towards them. "'Don't you be afraid,' he added. "'He can still see us.' McKeon turned his blue, blinking eyes, which seemed still misty with sleep, or sleeplessness, towards the idol, but his brows drew together. The little man with the long hair also had his eyes on the back view of the god. His eyes were at once liquid and burning, and he rubbed his hands slowly against each other. "'Do you know,' he said, "'I think he can see us better this way. I often think that this blank thing is his real face, watching, though it can't be watched. He, he! Yes, I think he looks nice from behind. He looks more cruel from behind, don't you think?' "'What the devil is the thing?' asked Turnbull gruffly. "'It is the only thing there is,' answered the other. "'It is force.' "'Oh,' said Turnbull shortly. "'Yes, my friends,' said the little man, with an animated countenance, fluttering his fingers in the air, "'it was no chance that led you to this garden. Surely it was the caprice of some old god, some happy, pitiless god.' Perhaps it was his will, for he loves blood. And on that stone in front of him, men have been butchered by hundreds in the fierce feasting islands of the south. In this cursed craven place I have not been permitted to kill men on his altar, only rabbits and cats sometimes. In the stillness McKeon made a sudden movement, unmeaning apparently, and then remained rigid. But today, today, continued the small man in a shrill voice, Today his hour is come. Today his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Men, men, men will bleed before him today. And he bit his forefinger in a kind of fever. Still the two duelists stood with their swords as heavily as statues, and the silence seemed to cool the eccentric and call him back to more rational speech. Perhaps I express myself a little too lyrically, he said with an amicable abruptness. My philosophy has its higher ecstasies, but perhaps you are hardly worked up to them yet. Let us confine ourselves to the unquestioned. You have found your way, gentlemen, by a beautiful accident, to the house of the only man in England, probably, who will favor and encourage your most reasonable project. From Cornwall to Cape Wrath, this country is one horrible, solid block of humanitarianism. You will find men who will defend this or that war in a distant continent. They will defend it on the contemptible ground of commerce, or the more contemptible ground of social good. But do not fancy that you will find one other person who will comprehend a strong man taking the sword in his hand and wiping out his enemy. My name is Wimpy, Maurice Wimpy. I had a fellowship at Magdalen. But I assure you I had to drop it, owing to my having said something in a public lecture infringing the popular prejudice against those great gentlemen, the assassins of the Italian Renaissance. They let me say it at dinner and so on, and seemed to like it, but in a public lecture, so inconsistent. Well, as I say, here is your only refuge and temple of honor. Here you can fall back on that naked and awful arbitration, which is the only thing that balances the stars." a still, continuous violence. Ve victus! Down, down, down with the defeated! 
victory is the only ultimate fact carthage was destroyed the red indians are being exterminated it is the single certainty in an hour from now that sun will still be shining and that grass growing and one of you will be conquered one of you will be the conqueror when it has been done nothing will alter it heroes i give you the hospitality fit for heroes and i salute the survivor fall on the two men took their swords then macian said steadily mr turnbull lend me your sword a moment turnbull with a questioning glance handed him the weapon macian took the second sword in his left hand and with a violent gesture hurled it at the feet of little mr wimpy fight he said in a loud harsh voice fight me now wimpy took a step backward and bewildered words bubbled on his lips pick up that sword and fight me repeated macian with brows as black as thunder the little man turned to turnbull with a gesture demanding judgment or protection really sir he began this gentleman confuses you stinking little coward roared turnbull suddenly releasing his wrath fight if you're so fond of fighting fight if you're so fond of all that filthy philosophy if winning is everything go in and win if the weak must go to the wall go to the wall fight you rat fight or if you won't fight run and he ran at wimpy with blazing eyes wimpy staggered back a few paces like a man struggling with his own limbs then he felt the furious scotchman coming at him like an express train doubling his size every second with eyes as big as windows and a sword as bright as the sun something broke inside him and he found himself running away tumbling over his own feet in terror and crying out as he ran chase him shouted turnbull as macian snatched up the sword and joined in the scamper chase him over a county chase him into the sea shoo 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 the little man plunged like a rabbit among the tall flowers the two duelists after him turnbull kept at his tail with savage ecstasy still shooing him like a cat but macian as he ran past the south sea idol paused an instant to spring upon its pedestal for five seconds he strained against the inert mass then it stirred and he sent it over with a great crash among the flowers that engulfed it altogether. Then he went bounding after the runaway. In the energy of his alarm, the ex-fellow of Magdalen managed to leap the paling of his garden. The two pursuers went over it after him like flying birds. He fled frantically down a long lane with his two terrors on his tail till he came to a gap in the hedge and went across a steep meadow like the wind. The two Scotchmen, as they ran, kept up a cheery bellowing and waved their swords up three slanting meadows down four slanting meadows on the other side across another road across a heath of snapping bracken through a wood across another road and to the brink of a big pool they pursued the flying philosopher but when he came to the pool his pace was so precipitate that he could not stop it and with a kind of lurching stagger he fell splash into the greasy water getting dripping to his feet with the water up to his knees the worshipper of force and victory waded disconsolately to the other side and drew himself on to the bank and turnbull sat down on the grass and went off into reverberations of laughter
A second afterwards, the most extraordinary grimaces were seen to distort the stiff face of MacIan, and unholy sounds came from within. He had never practiced laughing, and it hurt him very much. End of chapter 6 Recording by Tricia G.